Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 24, verses 9 through 12. David said to Saul, why do you listen when people say, David wants to ruin you? Look, today your own eyes have seen that the Lord handed you over to me in the cave. But I refuse to kill you. I spared you, saying, I won't lift a hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Look here, my protector. See the corner of your robe in my hand? I cut off the corner of your robe, but didn't kill you. So know now that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I haven't wronged you, but you are hunting me down, trying to kill me. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but I won't lift a hand against you. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Naomi. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. For the sake of the Lord, submit to every human institution. Do this, whether it means submitting to the emperor as supreme ruler, or to governors as those sent by the emperor. They are sent to punish those doing evil and to praise those doing good. Submit to them because it's God's will that by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Do these as God's slaves, and yet also as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Have respectful fear of God. Honor the emperor. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Cor. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and correct them when you are alone together. If they listen to you, then you've won over your brother or sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. But if they still won't pay attention, report it to the church. If they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile and tax collector. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for gathering us together as your people in your presence to hear you speak. So Holy Spirit, would you open our ears to hear would you open our minds to understand and would you rend open our hearts that we might re receive the grace and love and mercy of Jesus and that that same love and grace and mercy might be poured back out of us. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Jason Jackson, one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. I want to say a special welcome to everybody who's watching online and for those of you who are guests visiting with us this morning. When I was in high school in this small rural town in northern Iowa, I spent a significant amount of time organizing non-official school activities. Things like a March Madness bracket pool for teachers and students and folks and, you know, kind of 
pulling resources together and seeing who would win. And doing things like that around sporting events, but also organizing a game called Assassin, which sounds as bad as it is. Um, and so anybody played this game like in high school or college? Like a couple of honest hands going up. So here's basically how the game works. It's you get a group of people together, and the goal of the game is to try to eliminate each other one by one. And so it works either in one of two ways, either you know, kind of divide up all the names, everybody gets a card with a name on it, and then you sort of try to take them out with Nerf guns or water guns or something like that. And if you take someone out, then you get the card of the person that they're going after, and you keep going until there's no one left. The other way to play it is the way that we did, which was instead of using like Nerf guns and those kind of things, is for us, you had to try to isolate the person that you were assigned to take out and then yell at them, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, three times without anybody else hearing. So you couldn't whisper and you couldn't have anybody else over here because if somebody else overheard, then it nullified the hit. Uh, and now the person knew that you were after them. Well, when we were playing this game, I had a PE class, a gym class in the middle of the day. And at the time, I was on the varsity football team, so I was using that locker room to get ready for PE class. And the only other person that used the locker room at that time for that class was my friend Andy. And the person who had my name realized this. And so they conspired with Andy to take me out in the locker room. Well, Andy also knew that it was my habit to use the restroom right before I went to gym class. And so I went into the restroom as usual. Andy goes running out of the locker room, unbeknownst to me. The other person comes sneakily in, and there I am, minding my own business. And I hear, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. I was terrified. <laughs> I mean, talking about a peaceful moment being disturbed greatly. I was terrified, I was terminated, I was officially out of the game at that point, and I learned a really hard lesson that day, that going to the restroom can be a life-threatening event. <laughs> it's the same lesson that Saul learns in today's text, uh, that there's something about going to the restroom that could be really dangerous. This is the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent. Lent is this 40-day journey that we take together as the people of God following Jesus to the cross. It's a season of repentance and prayer and preparing our hearts for Good Friday and to celebrate Easter Sunday and asking God to continue his work inside of us. And during this season, we've continued this series that we started a long time ago called Kingdom and Chaos. It's a series through the book of First Samuel, a book in the Old Testament. And 1 Samuel sort of charts this transition for Israel from this loosely held tribal confederation to a united monarchy, this place where they're identifying a king and sort of uniting under a kingdom. And the question that the book is raising over and over and over again is, what relationship will Israel, in particular Israel's kings, have to Yahweh and his kingdom? See, the intention is, is that Yahweh will be king and Israel will be his people. And they're adding this king in the middle of this. And what creates is this tension and this big question about how will Israel and her kings relate to Yahweh 
end to his kingdom. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at sort of the inverse trajectories of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. And we've been tracking to see how Saul, the first king, is actually falling. What's happening in his life is he's rejected the reign of God and therefore having his own reign as king being rejected. And then correspondingly seeing the rise of David, a king who's been anointed to take over the throne. And in this particular section of the book that we've been in, kind of in the 20s or so, we've seen that David is actually on the run, fleeing for his life from Saul. Saul's trying to take David out. And over and over and over again, Yahweh some way and rescues David, whether giving him sort of this elusive ability to avoid Saul throwing spears at him or intervening through uh, Saul's own children who protect David. We've seen over and over how it is that Yahweh does not hand David over to Saul. The question that starts to develop kind of in the middle of this is, well, what would happen though if God hands Saul over to David? what if the tables were turned? What, what would David do if suddenly instead of running from Saul and running from his life, what if he had a chance to take Saul out? What if he had the chance to do that? How would David respond? And we see that opportunity is actually presented here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And as we look at the text, what I want us to think about is not only what does David do in this moment, but what can we learn from David's example when we encounter Saul's in our own lives? When we have leaders in our lives, people that are either in our family or in our churches or in our businesses or somehow related, connected in our lives, what do we do? How do we respond to leaders that fail? What do we do in those moments? I think David provides us with a lens of kind of thinking through some of those things. So we're going to be in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. It says this. It says, Even as Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was informed that David was in the Engedi wilderness. And so Saul took 3,000 men. Remember, David has 600 at the time, so he's outnumbering him 5 to 1. Is the odds stacking up against you. He selected 3,000 men from all of Israel and went to look for David and his soldiers near the rocks of the wild goats. These are ibexes that are still in the Engedi area uh, today. And he came to the sheep pens beside the road where there was a cave. And Saul went into the cave to use the restroom. Because uh, even when you're pursuing your political foe, Normal life still happens kind of in the middle of this. So he goes in to use the restroom. And meanwhile, David and his soldiers were sitting in the very back of the cave. Has to be a huge cave to not notice that there are 600 other people inside of the cave with you when you're looking for privacy. And so David's soldiers said to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he promised you, I will hand your enemy over to you and you can do to him whatever you think best. What's really interesting about this story besides the setup is that Yahweh never actually promises this. That nowhere in 1 Samuel do we have this statement from the soldiers actually being in Yahweh's mouth. Never does he say that I will hand your enemy over to you. David's men here are probably interpreting this experience. They're saying, hey, look what's going on here. Yahweh has anointed you king. He has protected you over and over and over again from Saul. We know Saul's on the way out. You're on the way in. And now look, 
a bathroom break. You've got a chance to really take over at this point. Yahweh has set this up for you. He's giving him over to you. It's an incredible opportunity. He has a chance in this moment, David, to take out a corrupt king and to advance his own position. It's like a political BOGO. You know, buy one, get one right here. Takes him out, advances his own place. This is amazing. For those of us who've been in experiences where we have a leader, a boss, somebody in our life who's an authority over us, this is the kind of thing we dream about sometimes at night, right? How can that person be gone? And even better, what if I could take their spot? Thinking David's presented with this opportunity right here in this moment. This is what happens. And so David snuck up and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I'm guessing Saul took the robe off and like hung it on a rock somewhere while he was, you know. Um, so the robe's hanging over here and he goes up and he cuts it off. But immediately David felt horrible that he had cut off Saul's robe. The Lord forbid, he told his men, that I should do something like that to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him because he is the Lord's anointed. So David held his, his soldiers in check by what he said, and he wouldn't allow them to attack Saul. Saul then left the cave and went on his way. Such a strange passage. Right? We have this like robe cutting ceremony in the middle of a bathroom break. It's like, what is going on here? Why is it that David goes up and cuts off a corner of the robe and why does he feel bad about it? It seems a little bit odd. But what's actually happening here is recalling an earlier event in the book. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul has rejected Yahweh's reign and therefore forfeited his right to rule in Israel. And the prophet Samuel comes and tells Saul what's going on. Says, Saul, because you have done this, you are no longer going to be king, that your kingdom is going to come to an end. And Samuel starts to walk away from Saul, and Saul reaches out and tears the corner of his cloak, the corner of his robe. Samuel turns around and looks at Saul and says, this very day, the kingdom is going to be torn from you. So David goes in and takes the corner of the robe and cuts it off. This is a symbolic act saying your kingdom is going away. This is a political maneuver. This is a way of sort of a symbolic action of saying that this is what is going to happen is that robe is going to be cut off and Saul had, or Samuel had even told Saul that someone more worthy than you is going to do this. So David is claiming that. It's paramount to claiming the kingdom in this moment. And the text says that when this happened, David's heart struck him. Not that he was stricken, but his heart actually punched him. His heart, something rose up and said, no. He knew that he'd gone too far. And something about even that act, that symbolic act, was something that was beyond what he was actually comfortable with. I think it was in this moment, he was so close to violence so close to taking what it is that he knew would be his someday, what the Lord had already promised. He was so close to taking it into his own hands and going about and saying, yes, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity. He got so close that he realized what he was about to do. And he's like, I can't do this. His heart struck him. 
is that temptation to use force to get what we want is always so present. It's just to take it. What's really interesting about David's response here is that David shows this remarkable respect for the position that Saul occupies. And he shows incredible mercy to the person in that place. He respects the position and he shows unbelievable mercy to the person. The person who's trying to kill him, who's attacking him. He mercifully lets him lead. See, for David, he knows as he goes into this moment that Saul is still the Lord's anointed. All of his baggage, all of his mistakes, all of his stuff going on, he is still the king. Despite his failures, he's still in that position. He still sits in that seat. And David knows that it's the Lord who put him there. It's the Lord who anointed him for that. And he respects that position. I think this is why we find in the New Testament passages like our New Testament reading from 1 Peter 2. Where Peter's writing to the church and telling the church to respect and honor all human earthly authorities. And to honor the people that are in those positions. Does it strike anybody as odd that he says to accept the emperor and the governors and to honor the emperor? Like the emperor who sets himself against Jesus, the emperor who tries to take Christians out, that in the midst of these things, that this would be the encouragement for the people of God to continue to respect the position and honor the person that is sitting in the middle of that. And so what Peter is realizing is that God actually establishes earthly authorities. He puts people in those positions and he intends for them to serve his purposes. The challenge for us is, yeah, but so many times they go wrong. <laughs> like so many times those leaders fail, those institutions become corrupt and you know what would be better? Let's just get rid of all of them, right? Has anybody else ever had that thought? Like, wouldn't it just be better? Seriously, like we just get rid of all of this. And everybody just kind of do it on your own. Not have to worry about, you know, people and institutions and taxes and, you know, whatever else. Like, wouldn't that just be better? And the scriptures over and over again saying, no, it wouldn't be. Those are actually set up by God for a purpose. The answer to corrupt leaders and corrupt institutions is not anarchy. That's not the route. Though leaders and institutions become corrupt and leaders can abuse their authority, order is still better than chaos. And there's still an intention behind it. And so as the followers of Jesus were called, even in really difficult places, to figure out what does it mean to respect those positions? How do we do that? How do we respect those positions and honor the people that are in them? David uses the language here that he shouldn't touch the Lord's anointed one. How many of you in church have ever heard anybody use that phrase for any specific thing? Yeah, most of my experience with it is it's it really misused and abused, right? It gets used in the sense to suggest that leaders, that those who are anointed by God for some purpose, are then, because of the Lord's work in their life, now infallible. Like, they can do no wrong. Don't question them. Don't, you know, like, they're the Lord's anointed. They're the man of God. They're the woman of God. Don't, don't, don't. And then what happens is that those leaders end up in places where they're able to do actually great harm because they have no accountability. Because nobody's actually 
checking on them. That's not what's happening here. David's language is not that leaders can do no wrong, and it doesn't mean that we should ignore their wrongdoing. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying something else. And the really tricky thing for us in the middle of it is that we can see in these moments where leaders are doing wrong things, where they are morally bankrupt, and yet still the Lord uses them. It's like, what? What do we do in those situations? But then we also see that the Lord's using them, but also sort of actively working to remove them from that position. And frequently we're kind of caught in this sort of strange tension. Saying, well, what do we do in those kind of situations? See, Saul's actions disqualify him from the position. He's on his way out. But until the Lord removes him, he's still king. And it can be really confusing. It can be especially confusing for us, I think, when it happens in families. Right? When the person that we're talking about is in that role or maybe in businesses with a mentor or in churches and ministries with a pastor or somebody who you have deep trust in and all of a sudden there's these other things that are going on but they're still in that position and you're like, ah. I remember when I was working at the first church that I worked at, I was a youth pastor at a church plant that became one of the fastest growing churches in the country. After about three years, there were 4,000 people gathering on the weekend. It was crazy. It was so much fun. You know, it's just, it's like, ah, so much energy and people. It's like, and it just seemed like the Lord was breathing on everything. And everything seemed to be kind of just easy. You know, we had to set up and tear it out, but that was like the, the biggest challenge that we had. Church in a box. And then all of a sudden we found out one summer that the senior pastor had been in a 10-month affair with a staff member. And when that came to light, like all the wheels came off. We had six unintentional church plants in the next year and a half. You know, it's just things started happening and what became, went from like the funnest church to work at suddenly was, you know, anything but that. And it was the confusing moments where you're sitting there thinking back on those 10 months and thinking about all the things the Lord had done. The sermons that were powerful, the things that were said that were like, oh my gosh, Lord, I needed to hear that. The things that the Lord was doing in those moments as this person was leading and doing this other thing on the side. Like, what do we do with that? How? Uh, do we then take all of the things that the Lord did and just sort of like throw them all out? Or somehow the Lord's anointing the Lord's desire to help and the Lord's grace greater than that and just still use the person in that place while trying to bring that person to repentance and eventually bringing everything to light. And that moment when we were gathered together as the people was still using that person to do the things that God wanted to do in people's lives. And those things can be so confusing when the leaders that hurt us, the leaders that fail us, are people who the Lord has used in incredible ways. Like, God, what do we do in those moments with those things? And David, in this moment where he is facing this, of saying, here's my king. And he's trying to take me out. And he shows respect to the position and still sees somehow God's hand at this. This is still the Lord's anointed king. So he responds in particular ways because of that. And one of the things he does is that he shows remarkable mercy. He lets Saul live in the middle of that. 
How do we respect and show mercy in those times while at the same time not remaining silent? Sometimes we think what it means to not touch the Lord's anointed is that we ignore evil, that we ignore wrongdoing, that we don't say anything, that we don't speak up, that we just kind of let it go. And we can think about all the things that have happened like in the Church 2 movement of seeing the ways in which people did not speak up when leaders were abusing their authority and using their authority to abuse people and nobody said anything. That's not what this means. There's this respect and mercy, but there's also this speaking up. David actually does not stay silent. It goes on and it says this, this afterwards, David also rose up and went out of the cave and called after Saul. He said, my Lord and my King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with face to the ground. And he did obeisance. He bows to Saul in this moment, shows him this respect and then he stands up and he says, David, David says to Saul, why do you listen to the words who say David seeks to do you harm? This very day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave and some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I showed you mercy. And I said, I will not raise my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your cloak and did not kill you when I had the chance, you know for certain that there is no wrong or treason in me. I have not sinned against you, though you are hunting me to take my life. I have not sinned against you, but you, goes on, will say, you've done wicked. You have sinned against me. See, David does not lift his hand against Saul, but he does lift his voice. He does speak out. He does not ignore injustice and corruption and evil and sin. He confronts Saul. He presents his case and he pleads for justice. He pleads for the right thing to be done. Which is really interesting because when Israel is asking for a king, they ask for a king to rule over them. The original word there in the Hebrew language is actually a king to judge us. A king to administer justice, to make sure everything is right, to set the balances, to bring about God's ways and God's will, to judge. And Saul has failed. He's failed miserably in this case. And David calls him on it. You have not done what you were supposed to do. Saul has done evil. He's repeatedly and maliciously done harm. It's important to recognize that in the midst of this conversation because there's a difference here in thinking about those that are maliciously doing evil and harm and those who we just simply like disagree with. So there are some leaders that our challenge with them is not an issue of sin and evil. It's about preference and style, right? Just not everybody's going to like everybody. <laughs> There's differences in that. So it's not a decision that David disagreed with. This wasn't a bad decision or a mistake or an isolated incident or a weakness in Saul or a personality difference. See, when, when we don't like something that a leader is doing or, or even another person, coworker, someone on the same level as us, when we disagree with the decision or maybe they've hurt us unintentionally and they don't know it or they disappoint us or even when they sin against us, 
We're supposed to follow the instructions like in Matthew 18. We're supposed to go to that person, to tell them what happened, to speak up, to say, hey, this is what's going on. This hurt me, or why did you do this, or I don't understand, and bring that to the person and have a conversation. And if they've sinned and if they're repentant and they change, then we kind of move forward. You know, if they've made a mistake, you know, they kind of can explain, you know, what happened. They can try to make it right. If there's something that happened where it's just a disagreement, we can say, ah, we're just going to agree to disagree on this. And we walk through and talk through those issues and figure out a way to live at peace with one another as much as is possible. To learn to appreciate and be grateful for the things that we do like and we do admire and to say, yeah, these other things are just not my preference. You know, it's just something about them that kind of annoys me a little bit or I don't really like this about them. But hey, you know, it's part of the package. We all have those things in our lives. But when they're leaders in our lives, are unrepentant, when they continually do harm, when they are malicious and evil and unjust, we have to speak out, to lift our voice. We go to them, and if they don't respond, then we bring other people in, and we follow whatever the proper protocols are for the world that we find ourselves in. Whether it's, you know, in the military or in business, I mean, every kind of organization has its own sort of ebb and flow of this. The church has its own. We have to call evil for evil, and abusive leaders should not remain in leadership. They shouldn't. There should be a place of removal. We should do everything we can to call for that. And if we have the power to remove them without deadly force, then we should, right? David did not have that opportunity. The only way to remove Saul himself was to kill Saul. He's like, I'm not going to go there. So he lifts up his voice. He does everything he can. He did what he could. He lifted his voice to Saul. And when Saul, you know, in addition to that, more importantly, he lifts his voice to God. He doesn't only lift his voice up there. He lifts his voice to God in prayer. Listen to this. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the ancient proverb says, out of wickedness come forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. Against whom is the king of Israel come out? Who do you pursue? This is David talking to himself. Who am I, a dead dog? A single flea? You're bringing 3,000 people, so he thinks more than that. So, but may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me. May he see to it and plead my cause and vindicate me against you. He prays. He says, God, would you do something about this? Would you take over? Would you come? Would you intervene? He appeals to Yahweh to do what Saul was supposed to do. Saul was set in that position to bring about justice and doesn't, and so then he goes to the greater leader. He says, Yahweh, would you come and do your thing? See, David trusts that God will enact justice eventually. He trusts. He doesn't take matters into his own hands when he had the chance. But he trusts that God will deal with Saul in his way and in his time. Trust that Yahweh would do it. See, our actual great hope is that God wants justice more than we do. I mean, as much as we want those situations to be resolved, as much as we want those leaders to be taken care of, as much as we want things to change, God wants it more than we do. And not only does he want it more than we do, he's actually more willing and more able to do it than we are. Than in our own sort of strength and power, sort of, you know, taken into our own hands, like, we'll fix it. Not always, because we bring our own stuff into that situation. 
And the great hope of the Christian faith is that someday he actually will do this in every situation. That he will come in and make everything right. That's what we just proclaimed in the creed. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. To judge everything. To set everything right. To call every evil as evil. And to vindicate every good and righteous thing. That's what he's going to come again to do. The story goes on, it says this, is when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, so he comes out and he says this, Saul says, is this your voice? David, is that you? And Saul lifted his voice and he wept, cried. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Saul concedes. He recognizes, says, yep, you're right. That's what I've done. In a sense, we could say that Saul kind of repents in this moment. And it goes on and he starts to intercede for a little bit. He says, hey, would you remember my kids and not wipe them out? And David agrees. He swore this to Saul and Saul went home. So this, but, but David and his men went back up to the stronghold. They went back up into the cave. So Saul concedes, acknowledges what he, he, he did, or what he did, and it seems like it's all good, right? Like, well, Saul's crying. Like, crying's a good sign. Like, surely it's all better now, so let's just pretend like none of this ever happened and all go back and go back into Saul's court. You notice that David doesn't do that? David does not go back. They're really like, oh, no, surely everything's fine. Saul said so. He cried. So now it's fine. It's all better. But that's not how this ends. This ends with Saul going home and David going back to the cave. See, David had removed himself from Saul's house. He had removed himself from an abusive authority. And now he's confronted that authority. That authority seems to have repented, but he stays away to see what happens. See, so the other thing that David does here is David has to wait and David has to be wise. David has to wait and he has to be wise. He has to wait to see if Saul's repentance is actually genuine. That words are actually backed up with actions. We have a saying around New Life that we talk about a lot around the leadership table in New Life is that trust is gained in drops and lost in bucketfuls. Just gone in a moment. What took years and years and years and years and years and years to build. can be gone like that. Just poured out. And Saul has lost all of it. He has poured out buckets, vats, water towers of trust just spilled out and he has to earn it back drop by drop. And the challenge sometimes when we find fallen leaders in our world is that they say they're sorry and then they immediately want everything to go back the way that it is. And they think that it's unjust if we don't just sort of put them right back in the same spot and give them the same influence. And oftentimes there are followers that say, yeah, we want them back in that same spot because they mean so much to us. They've ministered to us in, in this way. We, we want this down. We want that person back. And we both, in both parties, want it to go way too quickly. And put someone who's not ready back in leadership and those whose trust has been violated and broken, put them back under that person. And it's not 
what the Lord calls us to do. You have to wait and to be wise. In fact, two chapters later, Saul comes after David again. Didn't take long before David's words, Saul's words were not backed up with actions. Yes, he cried. Yes, he said, you're more righteous than me. But two chapters later, he's on the hunt again, coming after him. And so David then has to wait for God to bring justice. He has to wait to see what Saul's going to do, and he has to wait for God to make things right. In the middle of it, he has to be wise. He keeps a distance. He stays back in safe places. See, David is moving to this place where a lot of us find ourselves going, well, what do we do in these situations when someone has hurt us and someone's offended us? We know that the response that God invites us into is a place of forgiveness. But sometimes we think that forgiveness is the same thing as restoration. That forgiveness is reconciliation, it's restoration. They're not the same thing. The goal of forgiveness is always restoration. But in order for restoration to happen, the other person actually has to repent. And then they have to change. And then they have to earn trust back drop by drop by drop by drop over a long period of time. This is wisdom. The Lord doesn't ask us to forgive somebody who's abused us by going right back into a relationship with them. It's unwise. David doesn't do that. He stays away. He stays safe. He watches. He prays for Saul. He remains open to God doing something in Saul's life. He wants that to happen, but he recognizes that a huge part of that's on Saul. And he's got to wait to see what it is that Saul is going to do. And the truth is, is that we all actually have to wait and be wise. Every leader that we have in our lives Every leader will fail us in some way. Everyone will. It may be little. It may be a disappointment. It may be an issue of preference or style or decision that really wasn't that costly, but just kind of, you know, rubbed you the wrong way. Something that you just didn't like. And it may be something bigger than that. Maybe a deep hurt or wound where the scar is with you for a very, very, very long time. Every leader in some way will disappoint us. This is why the best leaders actually are those that point beyond themselves to Jesus. That say, hey, don't follow me, follow Christ. Follow him, the true anointed one, the one who will not disappoint us, the one who will not fail us. This is why the church for thousands of years has put the center of the service as the table. To say that, you know what, the, the most important thing in the service is not the songs that we sing. Because then we'll have the tendency to think, oh, it's that worship leader. Oh, man, they're it. Like, they are the stuff. It's not the sermon. It's like, oh, that preacher. Oh, man, they just, they've got it. They are the one. They, they, whatever it is that they've got, that's, that's it. That's the special sauce. no. It's Jesus. So we put the table here to remind ourselves this is the one we follow. And all of the leaders in our lives who do a really great job are those that take us and point us beyond them to him. And to say, no, we follow him. He's the one who will not disappoint us. He's the one who won't let us down. He's the true anointed one. We are little anointed ones, all of us, but he's the anointed one. 
the true king we follow. This morning as we come to the table, I want us to take a few moments, though, just to stop and pray together. So my sense is, is that when we gather a group of people like this in a room, that many of us, if not majority of us, have some deep wounds from leaders. Maybe a parent, maybe a boss, maybe a pastor, maybe a mentor, but somebody has failed in your life and it's left a wound. We've got something that happened in us that's so confusing and so hard and we're not sure what, what do we do with this, God? And when we come to the table, we look beyond that, we look to Jesus and we ask Jesus to heal us. Say, Lord, in those places where we've been hurt, where leaders have failed us, would you heal our hearts? Would you help us to forgive? Would you teach us to be wise? Do you give us the strength to trust anybody again? It's going to be really hard to trust the next person in that position after that's happened, can it? Say like, oh, I'm going to open myself up to that again. Oh, God, please no. Let's go to anarchy instead. I just don't want it. And the other thing, though, is that we're all leaders. We all lead in some area of our lives. We all have people that look up to us that who we have influence in their lives, whether we are parents, with kids, older siblings, the younger siblings, whether that's a position that we have at work, whether that's influence that we have in a small group or a team, or some folks that you've gathered together. We've all got influence. We're all leaders. And the truth is we've all failed. So we come to the table not only to ask for healing, but to also ask for forgiveness, to ask for help. Say, Lord, help us to be the kind of people that are open to others coming to us and saying, that was wrong. And to repent and to change and have the strength from the spirit to say, God, help us. Help us steward this opportunity well. Help us to be the kind of people who are faithful to take the opportunities that you give us and, and really care for them well. So I want to take a moment and just pray for both things, for the Lord's healing and for the Lord's help for us this morning. Jesus, we look to you. For those of us who've been wounded, hurt, abused, neglected. For those of us who carry deep wounds, would you heal them? Would you help us to look beyond what that leader did in our lives and look to you? To see you to receive everything that we need from you. And we also pray that you would help us to lead well, 
to be the kind of leaders in whatever place we find ourselves in to say to those that you've placed around us, don't look at me, look at him. <laughs> to point beyond ourselves to you, Jesus. To help people find you, to connect with you, to follow you. Forgive us for the times that we've failed to do that, for the times that we've hurt and disappointed and sinned against and wounded others. Would you forgive us and help us to change, help us to repent and to live differently, to learn and to move forward. We know that the only way that we can stay faithful for the long haul is by you. So help us to hold the trust well that you and others that give us. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.